So this term, we've been doing a series about some of the big questions about Christianity and the Bible and what it means to be a Christian. And this week, I'm going to talk about Jesus. Not such a big surprise, you might think. After all, we are a church. But uh, my prayer today is that this will transform how we think about Jesus and how we relate to him in our lives. So today's big question is, how could Jesus be both God and man, and why does it matter? If you prefer a posh-sounding title instead, it's a Christological reflection on the incarnational significance of kenosis in the Christ hymn in Philippians 2 in the light of Hebrews 2 and 4. But if we'd called it that, then no one would have come. Now, the first time that I talked about this, uh, a few years ago, I started by asking for a show of hands, which I won't do today. But the question I asked was, who thinks that Superman and Clark Kent is a good way of explaining how Jesus was both God and man at the same time? Uh, that ended up as a, a chapter in one of my books, chapter nine in How to Read the Bible Well, was Jesus a Superman? Now, I assume everyone knows the story of Superman, but just so that we're all on the same page at the start, let me just quickly explain that he came to Earth as a baby from the planet Krypton and was fostered by an elderly couple called the Kents. But they soon realized that this child had superhuman powers, the ability to fly, X-ray vision, unimaginable strength and virtual indestructibility. When he grew up, Superman's alter ego was Clark Kent, a mild-mannered reporter working for the Daily Planet newspaper in the city of Metropolis. So Clark Kent looked just like a normal human being. He looked just like us, but he wasn't really. He'd actually come to Earth from another planet with superpowers. Underneath, he was really Superman. So that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Is Superman and Clark Kent a good way of explaining, a good illustration of how Jesus was both God and man at the same time? If so, why? And if not, why not? So if you happen to have uh, children and kids this morning and they come running up to you after the service and they say, Mummy, Mummy, what did Steve talk about today? as they surely will, you have a choice. You can either say he gave a Christological reflection on the incarnational significance of kenosis in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2 in the light of Hebrews 2 and 4, or he talked about Jesus and Superman. Now, the last time I spoke about this was in the States, and it happened to be St. Thomas's Day, which is the first Sunday after Easter. And Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. But if you know what Thomas is famous for, it's quite hard to believe that the church would name any day after him, because he is the one that they call Doubting Thomas. And it's easy for us to be harsh on poor old Thomas, but he didn't know then what we know now. You see, Jesus' disciples didn't have the benefit of the New Testament and the creeds and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. How on earth did anyone manage without that, you may wonder. And most of all, they didn't have the benefit of being part of Sutton Vineyard. But it wasn't just Thomas, of course, who was confused by what was going on. He was 
probably just the one who was brave enough to say something. Because all of Jesus' disciples spent the whole time he was with them trying to figure out who Jesus was. Now, it's easy for us, 2,000 years later, to say, well, Jesus was obviously the Messiah. But that wasn't that straightforward at the time. The, the Messiah was a major figure for faithful Jews in the first century, a savior or rescuer figure that God was going to send. But there was no single understanding of who this Messiah would be and what he would be like and what exactly he would do. And certainly no one was expecting him to be divine. Messiah just meant anointed one. So some kind of great leader like Moses or King David who would put the world to rights and rescue Israel from its enemies. But the detail of that was very sketchy. So there was a lot of speculation about when he would come, why he hadn't yet come, whether he would be a king or a priest or a prophet, whether he would lead a revolt against the Romans and so on. And in the Old Testament, there were basically two different pictures painted of the Messiah by the prophets. There was a conquering king kind of Messiah, like King David, and a suffering servant kind of Messiah, as we see in Isaiah 53. And it's probably no wonder that with Israel being under Roman occupation, the conquering king figure was the one that people most liked the sound of. They were suffering enough already, all by themselves. They really didn't feel the need for a Messiah to come and suffer with them. So when we read the Gospels, we shouldn't underestimate just how difficult it would have been for these disciples to figure Jesus out. It was really only after the resurrection, as they reflected on their experiences of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit, and looked at the Old Testament scriptures, and they brought those experiences and those scriptures together, only then did the full picture begin to emerge of Jesus the Son as we now understand him. And the reason that it took some time is because this Jesus was a bit of a paradox. You see, on, on the one hand, there were the signs and wonders, the healings and the miracles. Only God could do things like that. So Jesus must be God. But on the other hand, he got hungry and thirsty. He got exhausted and fell asleep. He cried when one of his friends died. He experienced temptation and pain and suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for there to be some other way. And then in the agony of the cross, he felt like God had abandoned him. And he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the kind of stuff that we feel and the kind of questions that we ask. Only a real human being would be like that. So Jesus must be human. So there was this overwhelming evidence of Jesus' divinity, but also overwhelming evidence of his humanity. All at the same time and all in the same one person. So when we, when we read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, it's almost as if we're looking at two stories, two different Jesuses, a Jesus who is God and a Jesus who is human. 
But a better way of putting that is to say that we're looking at one Jesus from two directions. Now, the way that the theologians describe it is looking at Jesus from above, through the lens of Jesus was God, and looking at Jesus from below, through the lens of Jesus was human. And for us to get Jesus right, we need to be looking at him from both directions, not just the one. Now, this wasn't only the disciples who were struggling with how these two aspects came together. It was one of the big questions for the early church as well. And maybe not surprisingly, it led to some of the early heresies. And one of those was docetism, from the Greek word to seem like something. So docetism was saying that Jesus only seemed to be human. God dressed up in a human body, like Clark Kent, who also only seemed to be human. Interestingly, the early church didn't seem to have a problem with the idea of Jesus being God. They saw that as obvious. So their questions were all to do with Jesus' humanity. And I think the same thing tends to happen with Christians today. And I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One is that by focusing on Jesus' humanity, we're afraid of bringing him down to our level, making him too human. Probably because what we think we're up against with our friends is their assumption that Jesus was only human. So we think we need to put all our effort into persuading them that he actually was God. And the second reason is because we're wanting to point them to the heavenly Jesus with the power to change their lives. Raymond Brown says that since opponents of Christianity deny Jesus' divinity, believing Christians are far more sensitive about limitations placed on his divinity than they are about limitations placed on his humanity. Realistically, it may well be that most Christians tolerate only as much humanity as they deem consonant with their view of his divinity. They cannot visualize him as being like other men. I wonder if any of us ever feel a bit like that. Now, many Christians assume that because God knows everything and Jesus was God, then Jesus must have known everything as well. So he must have known about gravity and DNA and the earth not being flat and revolving around the sun. He would have known how to split the atom, perform heart surgery and so on. Things that would not be known by others for about another 2,000 years. In the 17th century, some Carmelite theologians followed this line of thinking to its obvious conclusion. If Jesus was the perfect human, they said, then he must have had every perfection that it's possible for any human to have. So he must have been the greatest artist, the greatest musician, the greatest doctor, and so on. Simply the best at everything. So we might ask ourselves today, if Jesus had been a betting man, could he have won the lottery every week if he'd wanted to? or beaten Tiger Woods without ever having a golf lesson. I bet Superman could. Let me read you something by Max Lucado and see whether some of it makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Angels watched as Mary changed God's nappy. 
The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Maybe a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to willing women. He got colds, burped, and had body odor. His feelings got hurt, his feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Now, the reason that I started studying theology um, after being a Christian and a Christian leader for many years was because I had more and more questions about things that didn't make sense to me, like the one that we're talking about today. In the church that we were at at the time, and still in many churches, you really weren't allowed to have questions. You were told to just have faith and not let your head get in the way of your heart. And I think the reason for that is mainly because most of the time the church leaders I was asking didn't know the answers themselves, but they were too embarrassed to say so. So let me run some of my questions past you and see whether maybe some of you have wondered about them yourselves. So I knew that Jesus had won the victory over Satan and sin and death. But then again, Jesus was the son of God, wasn't he? So he was hardly going to lose. Surely Jesus was always odds on to win that one. And then there were those three temptations in the wilderness which Jesus successfully resisted. That's great, I thought. Well done, Jesus. But me personally, I get three temptations a minute, not three in a lifetime. And mine are a bit more challenging than the ones in the Gospels. They're a bit less theological, if you know what I mean. And anyway, the Son of God is never going to fall for a few trick questions from Satan, is he? I wonder whether Jesus cried as a baby. Uh, away in a manger says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. So, presumably not. I wondered whether Jesus ever fell over and got cuts and bruises playing rugby or chipped fingernails playing football. <laughs> and if he did play sport, I wonder, did he always let the other team win? I wonder whether being perfect meant that he was always top of the class. Or maybe he pretended not to know everything so he didn't look like a show-off. I wondered if he ever fancied any of the girls in the village, whether he thought about getting married and maybe starting a family. And then there's the cross. Now you might be shocked by this, please forgive me if you are. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, if Jesus knew he was the son of God, and he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he'd be coming back to life again on the third day, going back to heaven where he'd come from, back to being king of kings and lord of lords, that must have made it a lot easier for him. After all, lots of people die painful deaths, don't they? 
at least 30,000 were crucified by the Romans. But we all have to die without knowing for sure what's going to happen next. We have to have faith. You see, basically, I thought of Jesus as coming to earth like on a missions trip. You know, with a a spreadsheet of all the things he needed to get done before being able to go back home again, back to heaven. So why don't we have a look at how we can answer those questions from scripture. Starting with Philippians chapter 2 where it says this. Although Jesus was by nature God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And what this early Christian hymn that Paul is is quoting is saying is that in becoming human, Jesus laid aside every aspect of what it means to be God that would have given him an unfair advantage over you and me in what it means for us to be human. He laid aside or emptied himself of everything to do with being God that would have been incompatible with being human like we are. Now, an easy example of that laying aside is God's omnipresence, being everywhere at once. For the sake of being human like us, Jesus gave up that advantage. The same with omniscience, which is God knowing everything about everything. That would have been incompatible with being human like us as well, because we don't know everything. So Jesus laid that aside too. He chose to limit himself in these ways, not because he had to, but because he chose to. And the theological word for that is kenosis, which is the Greek word for emptying that we see in this passage in Philippians 2. But why did he have to do that, you may say? Why was it so important for Jesus to be fully human as well as fully God? Why couldn't he just be like Clark Kent and Superman? And here's the answer. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And can you see the so that link here between Jesus sharing in our humanity and defeating the powers? So Hebrews is saying he couldn't have done that if he was just a Clark Kent. For this reason, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Being made like us in every way was essential to Jesus' mission to destroying death and the power of the devil, making us at one with God, which is what the word atonement means, bringing us into a relationship with God, becoming our high priest, our mediator, our advocate with the Father. 
And then verse 18 adds something else which is amazing. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, and do you see that, that word because here? Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are tempted. And Hebrews 4, it gets better. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, as Superman would. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the reason that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence is because we are approaching through Jesus. A Jesus who understands us from his own personal experience. And that's why we can have confidence to receive mercy and to find grace to help us. Because Jesus is at that throne of grace with us and for us. He speaks for us. He represents us. And he completely understands exactly what it is like to be us. So let's just think for a moment about Jesus being tempted in every way just as we are. Is that a little bit scary or not? I mean, not just the little bit naughty kinds of temptation, like eating two magnums or a second packet of peanuts, in my case, but the really embarrassing ones as well, the ones that we would rather not talk about. Who would have thought that Jesus would be tempted like that? And this is why it's so important that as Christians we understand the difference between temptation and sin. The implications of Jesus being made like us in every way except for sin are mind-blowing. What that means is that Anything and everything that I experience as part of being human, which is not sin, was also experienced by Jesus as part of his humanity. And that makes sense of what Luke, Max Lucado was saying in that passage, because it's not a sin for a baby to cry. It's not a sin to be tired or lonely or wonder if you've made the right decision. It's not a sin to not know everything or to have to live by faith in what you believe being true. In fact, it's what God asks us to do, isn't it? To live by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. So if none of those things are sin, then all of them would be true of Jesus as well. One aspect of being human is to have free will to have a choice as to whether we love God or not, whether we do what God wants or not. So what's the significance of that for Jesus? Free will is not sinful. It's how God made us. So Jesus had free will too. Philippians 2 verse 8 wouldn't be telling us that Jesus was obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, if disobedience had never been a possibility. That's why there was rejoicing in heaven at the victory that Jesus won. Because a foregone conclusion isn't called a victory, is it? It's called a fix. 
So if the human Jesus already knew everything for certain, if he'd already watched the movie of his earthly life, so to speak, and he already knew how everything was going to pan out in the end with no faith required, he would still be someone that we could admire. But he wouldn't be someone that we could relate to, who's a role model for us in how we live our lives day to day. Because none of us have the advantage of knowing any of that. God asks us to have faith, to trust that what we hope and believe, but can never be absolutely sure of, is true and to live accordingly. But I don't think that God would ask more of you and me in our humanity than he asked of Jesus in his humanity. So how did Jesus do the things that he did, the miracles and the signs and wonders? Well, if you ask how Clark Kent did something, then it's obvious. It's because he was Superman. But the answer to how Jesus did it is not because he was God. Now, that could have been how he did it if he'd wanted to. He could have kept hold of the third omni, omnipotence, the power to do anything. But he didn't. He laid that down. Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. He laid aside all of the advantages of being God so that in everything he did, he was doing it as someone like you and me. So if we are to do the stuff, as Wimber used to put it, like Jesus, if we are to be like Jesus, then it has to be, it can only be, through being human like Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in Luke 3 and Luke 4, what we see is a series of anointings, fillings, and empowerings, one after the other. Jesus was born of the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit on his baptism. He was full of the Spirit when he left the Jordan. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit after his wilderness experience. And in his first sermon, his mission statement, if you will, quoting from Isaiah 61, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release for people held captive, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and telling everyone that the time of God's favor has come. And that should be our mission statement as well. So that is why we pray, come Holy Spirit, and we invite him to do these things and bring these things into people's lives. So let me finish uh, with this, uh, another passage from Raymond Brown. Unless we understand that Jesus was truly human with no exception but sin, we cannot comprehend the depth of God's love. A Jesus who walked through the world with unlimited knowledge, knowing exactly what tomorrow would bring, knowing with certainty that three days after his death his father would raise him up, would be a Jesus who could arouse our admiration, but a Jesus still far from us. He would be a Jesus far from a humankind that can only hope in the future and believe in God's goodness.
Far from a humankind that must face the supreme uncertainty of death with faith, but without knowledge of what is beyond. On the other hand, a Jesus for whom the detailed future had elements of mystery, dread and hope, as it has for us. And yet, at the same time, a Jesus who would say, not my will but yours. This would be a Jesus who could effectively teach us how to live. For this Jesus would have gone through life's real trials. Matt, I wonder if you and the worship team could come and join me. Thank you. So whilst they're plugging in or whatever it is that they do, um, remember how I said earlier how the disciples struggled to figure out how Jesus could be both God and man. Well, maybe they shouldn't have because Jesus was constantly feeding them the clue. So in Matthew, Mark and Luke, not once does Jesus talk about himself as son of God and only twice in John. But he used son of man over 80 times. And the reason that that is significant is because in the book of Daniel, there is a vision of a heavenly figure, an anointed one who is to come, who will be both human and divine and the kingdom that he will bring. I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. And that's the Aramaic for a human being or a son of humanity. Coming with the clouds of heaven, Matthew twenty four thirty. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. So that's the divinity, because only God is to be worshipped. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So I wonder if that reminds you of anyone we know. The Jesus, fully God and fully man, who we worship.